Matthew 16, beginning at verse 13. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he was asking his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, and others, Elijah, but still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. So as we continue these studies, I want to consider the question, Who do you say that I am, that Jesus puts forth? Because as we continue with uh, some of the conversations I had with Jehovah's Witnesses, it's almost a guarantee that at some point that question will be raised. Who do you say that Jesus is? And so as we dive into this question, and I know I've, I've kind of already touched on this on the last, uh, the last teaching, um, one of the, the most basic Jehovah's Witness doctrines, which really lays the groundwork for a lot of what they believe, is the statement that Jesus is the first created being. So he is not God, but rather God created him first. And where they get this, if you turn, if you're following along, turn to Colossians chapter 1. And really, any book that you, uh, you can, any, any study note, anything that they have on their site, if it ever references Jesus and begins to talk about this, this is the verse they're going to touch upon. Um, and so how the conversation came about was actually when I picked up a little booklet um, after having met uh, this elder gentleman, and it was at Walmart again. I had picked up a little booklet from the stand, and it said, uh, what does the Bible actually teach? And so having taken that home and not really being concerned in the sense of you know, it changing my mind, but more so just, okay, let me examine their system. Let me uh, look at what verses they reference, and therefore I can take it back to the text and use it. So having come to, I think it was chapter 5, where it discusses who they believe Jesus is, um, it came to this, this belief that Jesus is the first created being. And you ask, well, how, how is it that they, they make this claim? So what they are doing is, if you go to Colossians chapter 1, verse 15, now I'm reading from the New American Standard, uh, it says, he, speaking of Jesus, right? He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. So they take that term firstborn and they say, they make it a literal statement. He is literally the firstborn of creation in the sense of that God created him. And then if you continue, yes, they'll at least admit that all things are created through him. But if you were to pull up jw.org, and I'm going to do that real quick, and pull up their uh, New World Translation, which again is a mistranslation. Um, give me a second here. 
Okay. So reading from the New World Translation 2013, this is Colossians 1, 15 and continuing. It says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, because by means of him all other things were created in the heavens and on earth, the things visible and the things invisible. Whether they are thrones or lordships or governments or authorities, all other things have been created through him and for him. So when you hear this, you go, okay, firstborn. And so what I did was having looked into this a little bit, and uh, you know, there's a lot of uh, good resources out there too, but honestly, just research the term firstborn. So one of the things that I did was, uh, having gone to a uh, Jehovah's Witness convention, it was a regional convention, and no, I didn't go in and attend, but I actually went uh, with Bible in hand and with that booklet on top as kind of the open door of conversation, uh, and ended up running into uh, two of the gentlemen that were, what what I, later I came to find out were actually over security. Um, they, you know, I walked up to them and they said, hey, you know, can I help you? And I said, well, I'd like to talk to you about this book. And I was showing them the little booklet that I had taken. You know, again, what does the Bible really teach? And I said, you know, and they said, okay, yeah. And they took a second, paused. And so I opened up to chapter five and I had kind of written some notes in it. And I said, here in Colossians 1, 15, when you guys mention firstborn, and I said, well, did, did you know that's used multiple times in the Old Testament? And they go, well, yeah, okay. And I said, but you understand that that can also be a title. And they're looking at me and they go, well, uh, what what do you mean? And I said, okay, well, in Exodus 4.22, and I had it kind of marked quickly as I do now. Uh, well, I thought I did. <laughs> Give me a second. Uh, this is the problem with having 20 things marked in your Bible to get to it. So Exodus 4.22, I said, well, in Exodus 4.22, it reads, then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my son, my firstborn. And then I said, and again in Psalm 89, 27, referencing David, it says in that verse that I will make him my firstborn. And then again in Jeremiah 31, 6, speaking of Ephraim, it says, and he is my firstborn. And I said, so you understand that the, the Jews can use the term firstborn as a title. And so that, that was kind of an open door. That was a way that it, it actually led into a, an hour and a half long conversation with these two men, uh, which they ultimately got upset um, after they realized <laughs> I was essentially teaching them um, many things and that completely went against their system. Uh, now, I won't get into all that right now, but so what I wanted to do was at least share that off the bat that you need to understand how the scriptures harmonize. You need to study these things because honestly, most people having heard that and just looking at the term, especially from an American viewpoint, would go firstborn yet. Well, that makes perfect sense. Firstborn and not knowing history, not knowing, especially not reading their old Testament. They would, they would not know 
that that is used of this, of these, or in this method of, of being a title. And so, and yes, I ended up using this again. And I'll get into that here in a little bit. But so what I'd like to do is actually dive in a little bit further before I walk through Colossians 1, because I want this to be kind of a, I, I want it to be known that when you speak to somebody and when these people come to your house and stuff, this is one of those tools that you can use. And if you study it, you have it down, it can be very powerful because scripture explains scripture. And they don't study these things. Yes, they have the watchtower that will tell them certain things. But just as you heard me reading from the New World Translation, again, they've twisted it. And if you don't know, they've actually added the term other because that's how they try and uphold the point that first created being. And so some of the passages that I'd like to turn to to just kind of hammer this, this point home is in Deuteronomy 21. I came across something recently when I was listening through it. And so this will be verse 15 and following, 15 through 17 actually. Now this is part of some of the rules that was laid out. And again, Deuteronomy is the second reading of the law, right? This is right before uh, they enter into the promised land. Moses is kind of repeating the law form. And he says here in 15, if a man has two wives, the loved one and the other unloved, and I won't get into having two wives, but he's laying out a point here. So he's got a loved wife and an unloved wife. Now think about this. Uh, Leah and Rachel, if I'm not mistaken, right? If you remember, Jacob had initially wanted Rachel, but uh, he was tricked and Leah became his first wife, but she was essentially unloved. And yet the Lord opened her womb first, as it reads in Genesis 29 around verse 31. Now the Lord saw that Leah was unloved and he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. And if you remember, even um, the line of Levi and Judah all come from the line of Leah. But so this is kind of, this would be reminding the Jews of this, but in uh, Deuteronomy 21, again, verse 15, if a man has two wives, the one loved and the one unloved, and both the loved and the unloved have borne him sons, if the firstborn son belonged to the unloved, then it shall be in the day he wills what he has to his sons, right? He's now given out his inheritance. He cannot make the son of the loved the firstborn before the son of the unloved, who is the firstborn. But he shall acknowledge the firstborn, the son of the unloved, by giving him a double portion of all that he has, for he is the beginning of his strength. To him belongs the right of the firstborn. So now ask the question, if firstborn literally means first created, why then would God have to lay out a law that when a man decides to give his inheritance, that the loved son who was not the first born, right? Why does it say he can't make him the first born? Ah, see, this is why it's important to understand culture. It's important to understand how the Bible harmonizes. And so what you have here is a perfect example of how even in the law, God declaring, right, 
that firstborn is a title. And what was the right of the firstborn? A double inheritance. Now you've got something to work with. So take them here, show them these things, right? And then let's dive in even a little bit more now. So the next passage I want to take you to is in First Chronicles 5. So as I turn there, we've got it marked. And I'll read uh, the first three or so verses. Now the sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel, and then in mine it shows brackets, for he was the firstborn, but because he defiled his father's bed, his birthright was given to the sons of Joseph, the son of Israel, so that he is not enrolled in the genealogy according to the birthright. Though Judah prevailed over his brothers, and from him came the leader, yet the birthright belonged to Joseph. The sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel, were Hanok, Palu, Hezron, Carmi. So there you go. So you see that Reuben lost his birthright, right? It was given over to Joseph, or the sons of Joseph, technically, Ephraim and Manasseh. So you, you have something here talking about the birthright. Now, I was curious. So this is something you can do. Now, yes, it's a little technical, but with today's technology and so many wonderful websites, um, you can find Greek and Hebrew interlinears. So I looked up a Hebrew interlinear, and out of curiosity, I looked up some of these passages where birthright was used in the verse. And lo and behold, as I'm looking at it, especially here in Chronicles 1, I'm pulling up on my, my phone, give me a second. It was fascinating because I realized that the Hebrew term for firstborn is a form of bechor, bechor, if I'm saying that right. And that is a masculine noun, right? That's a form of the masculine noun. But then, and that is literally the term firstborn. So the firstborn of Reuben um, is mentioned in that, that or is, is listed that way. But then when you get to the term birthright, it's bechorah, the feminine form of the noun. So bechor and bechorah. And of course, that can slightly change, or you might have like a an article, you know, with it or something like that. But um, so essentially, <laughs> the birthright and firstborn are almost identical, right? And so you can see how even in the Hebrew, it kind of shows that the firstborn is essentially kin and often used as the title for the one who is to receive the birthright. And what is the birthright? Again, as we read in Deuteronomy 21, that is receiving a double portion of the inheritance. And so, having laid that foundation now, you can go back to Colossians 1. Because as you point this out, they're not going to have an answer. But of course, most of the time, most of them have never even heard of this. So take them back to Colossians 1 and read back through the context. So Colossians 1, beginning with, and I'll just start at verse 13 because I think this is kind of where this all plays in. And again, this is even 13, for he, 
speaking of the father from verse 12, right? Uh, well, actually, since we're talking about an inheritance, let's back up even more. Um, verse 9, For this reason also, since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so that you walk so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all power, according to his glorious might, for the obtaining of all steadfastness and patience, joyously giving thanks to the Father, who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. For he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is, again, verse 15, now speaking of the son, right? Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and, here's the key, and for him. What is this passage speaking about? Inheritance. So, Christ, right? The Son. We are placed into his kingdom. We share in his inheritance but why is he the one who gets essentially the double portion or <laughs> all of the portion really because he is the firstborn of all creation not speaking of him being first created and that's what the context is showing here why does he have the right of firstborn because all things created by him and for him. All things have been created through him and for him. For the end of verse 16. Verse 17, he is before all things. And in him, all things hold together. And I remember even in my conversation, stopping at that point too and going, you realize in your system, if Jesus is the first created being, he's still a created thing, is he not? I said, it's pretty interesting how much power you were giving a created being when he says all things hold together and in him all things hold together. And I know that was a point that they didn't really have much <laughs> response to either because they hadn't really thought these things through. So continuing, verse 18, he is also the head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. Right? Verse 19, For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him. Verse 20, And through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. So do you get this now? What is the passage speaking about? Speaking about inheritance. And so you can point these things out. Now, in my studies, too, again, as I mentioned before, 
one of the best tools is to use their own devices against them. So here's what I did. And this kind of hit pretty hard to, uh, I guess, my fellow friend, my JW friend who I'd spoken to many hours. And in our last conversation, I really drove this home. And so I said, look, I pulled up the Greek interlinear from the JW.org site. And having read the New World Translation and knowing this and looking into this, you know, we, we read through his passage where it says he, you know, again, going back to Colossians 1, 15, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, because by means of him all other things. And I mentioned before, other isn't there. Now, earlier versions of the New World Translation will actually point out in brackets, other is bracketed. I don't remember if the 1984 version is, but I do know, uh, I was actually handed a, uh, an edition from the 1970s, early 1970s. Uh, it's green, green bind, real nice, still in good condition. But um, I was reading through that. And when I got to this passage, it actually had other bracketed in a means of showing, hey, this isn't here. Like we've added this right now. Side note. I enjoy reading the New American Standard. So something you, you do need to be aware of is in modern translations, you know, certain words aren't actually there from the Greek text, but because remember, one Greek word can actually be three or four English words, right? A form of a verb and some of the uh, prepositions and stuff, all, all the... I guess letters that are part of this word can have can change the meaning and even who it's talking about which subject it's talking about so when you have it translated into english sometimes uh the translators will add words which in the new american standard they're usually italicized um and a great example of this which i i didn't get into with this guy is uh if i remember correctly john 8 24 for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Now that he at the end of I am is not actually in the Greek. So they put he italicized in the New American Standard. So sometimes when I read through my own Bible, I'll, I'll reread the verse without the italicized words and see if it actually makes more sense. And when, like, for example, in that passage, that's an I am statement. Jesus is saying, for unless you believe that I am, ego I me, right? The I am, right? You will die in your sins. So something, you know, yes, you can use that as well. There's a whole big study on that. And I might end up doing a teaching on that too, because I did use it um, as part of my street preaching the second day I went to that conference. Uh, but... Anyways, jumping back into Colossians 1. So one of the things that I did was I said, look, and I pulled up the uh, New World Translation, the actually the Kingdom Interlinear. So as I was talking, I should have been turning to it and flip back to the online Bible. Choose the, under other Bibles, they have the Kingdom Interlinear Translation of the Greek texts or Greek scriptures. Click over to Colossians. And I did this on my, my cell phone with this gentleman. Uh, pulled up chapter one 
And again, it's got the Greek words underneath and the English above. And, and the word order isn't necessarily exact, but you can still make out what it's reading. And I showed him. I said, so let's, let's turn here. And I pulled up my phone and had him read right on it. And I said, read, just read this passage. And he was very hesitant, but, you know, being his own, uh, his own website and his own tools, and even at, right as I was doing it, he goes, oh, I didn't even know you used JW.org. I said, well, yeah, you'd be surprised. <laughs> so I hand it to him, and he reads verse 15, and I'm going to read it literal. This is what it says in the, in the kingdom interlinear. Again, this is their translation. Who is image of the God, the invisible, firstborn of all creation, because in him it was created, the all, and then things bracketed, in the heavens and upon the earth, the things bracketed, visible and the things invisible, whether thrones or lordships or governments or authorities, the all things through him and into him it has been created, and he is before all things, and the all things in him it has stood together, and he is the head of the body of the ecclesia, who is the beginning, firstborn out of the dead ones, in order that might become in all things he holding the first place so what do you notice other is not there it's not not even in the greek and I, as i mentioned in an earlier edition of this i've said listen it's it's easy for them to manipulate the english it's a lot harder to manipulate the greek because they don't actually know the greek now yes some of them have studied not to say that they have they you know they couldn't walk laps around most Christians, some of the watchtower personnel. But your average Jehovah's Witness, which is going to be 99.9% of them, do not look into these things. And I'm convinced that most of them don't even actually read their Bible again. They will only use the watchtower publications which walk them through certain texts, but obviously it's all question and answer led. So they're already thinking about a question and not paying attention to context. So when I showed this to him, he almost got upset. I mean, he was, and yes, this was even in my, the same conversation where I walked him through John 3. So he was already on edge and, you know, realizing that the things that I've been teaching him for many, many hours before over all of our conversations, it, I think it all started to kind of bear weight upon him. And he's looking at this and he just stops and and i said yeah after i said yeah the other is not there and he just looks at me he goes are you telling me the watchtower has changed the text to make their own point to make their own doctrines and i said listen that's what i've been trying to teach you this whole time but yeah if you want me to be blunt yes they are literally manipulating the text and he about lost it he was just so upset and I said, look, okay, I, I, in the, when, we, when we had met, at one point you had said you thought God had brought me to you so that you could speak to me. I said, you realize it was the other way around. God brought me to you to reveal truth to you. And because... It, one of the fascinating things about this man that I spent so much time with was that when I had met him at Walmart, you know, my heart went out for him, but he was the first one to take down my, my phone number. 
and I had actually gone to the, um, the regional conference looking for him. I was trying to find him. Didn't see him. Come to find out it, was, it wasn't their turn for the conference because it was going on for over a month, I think. So every week was like a different region of North Carolina. Uh, but he... Um, so it was the week later, and it was about mm, right around 10 a.m., and I was, you know, I think my family, we all slept in a little late, and I was getting ready to, uh, I was getting breakfast ready for my, my kids, and as I'm walking by the front door, out of the corner of my eye, I've got one of those little window slits, and I, I see somebody walking up, and it was simply by the providence of God, this man and his wife come walking up. And so with my Bible always staged at my, my, near my front door, I grab it, open the door. And to his surprise, you know, they, they recognized me. I recognized him. And I remember right off the bat, he's like, hey, I know you. And I said, yeah, and you never called me back, <laughs> which led into just us continuing to meet. Um, so... You know, when I had when I had presented this to him, when I think all of the weight of my teachings with him had just come to bear at this, when I showed him in their own kingdom interlinear that yes, the text is manipulated. Don't be afraid to walk them through these things. Don't be afraid to show them, because this is going to have some of the greatest impact. They listen. They they don't know what it means to be taught the word. They don't. And I think part of the reason why he kept wanting to meet up was because this was completely different than anything he'd ever dealt with. And he, I remember, even after our first uh, conversation, I, I ended up using the what does the Bible really teach as, as that kind of that, that open door, right? And so he wanted to walk through it. And what he had mentioned at one point is, you know, normally they can go through an entire chapter of that book within 15 minutes. We didn't get through the first two paragraphs in an hour and a half. And that's because any verse that was mentioned, I flipped to it and I read it and then I challenged them on the context. And it's something that they had never had to think about before. And so, you know, this is something you got to do. Well, let's take it even further because after having shown him this and I'm explaining these things to you, I said, look, and also in your system, this is talking about Jesus creating things, right? All things were created for him and through him. Through him, yes. And I said, now, that brings to light John 1.1, 1, 1, which is not a passage I'd recommend you go into first because they're going to know John 1.1, 1, 1, but pay attention to John 1.3, right? This is, again, speaking of the word, the word was with God and the word was God, verse 1, he was in the beginning with God, verse 2, verse 3, all things came into being through him. And apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. You get that. Colossians 1 is basically just expounding on that point. And I said, but as, as listening through Isaiah, which I often do, especially ver, uh, chapters 40 through 66, I usually do it a couple times a year. Um, I said, but let me point something out to you. So I turned there to, and I said, Isaiah 44, 24. 
I said, can I, can I read it to you? And he's at this point, he's like, yeah. And so I turned to it and I said, reading from my Bible, thus says the Lord, your redeemer and the one who formed you from the womb. I, the Lord am the maker of all things, stretching out the heavens by myself and spreading out the earth all alone. So I look at him and I said, so God declares in Isaiah 44, 24, that he created all things and he did it by himself. I said, how do you reconcile that? Again, I can recognize that God is one being and in that one being, there are three co-equal and co-eternal persons. This is upheld in this verse because as we get further revelation, understand who Jesus is, we recognize that he was there in the beginning. All things are created through him and for him. So in your system, he wasn't there, right? Otherwise, you have a contradiction here in your text. So with that, you've got some more tools. Study these things. Show yourself approved. Take them to the text and allow the Holy Spirit to work through this. Don't always be so anxious just to have them say a prayer or anything like that. Listen, allow the Holy Spirit to work. You don't need any glory. All glory to Christ. You just proclaim the word, lay that seed, and when the time is right, call him to repent. Call him to turn. This is the power of the gospel.